Hey guys, welcome to Church Coffee, Christianity, Conservatism, and Culture. I'm one of your hosts, Walter. And I'm your co-host, Rob, and today we have Dr. Gordon Nickel. Um, Dr. Nickel has written several books on apologetics between Christians and Muslims. Mostly, uh, we will be talking today about his uh, Quranic commentary, uh, the Quran Christian commentary, which I highly recommend to anyone um, looking to just get some good uh, basic, but also at the same time, in-depth knowledge of, of the Quran and, and Islam in general. So, Dr. Nickel, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Uh, and uh, thanks for inviting me to this conversation. Very interesting. And we're sort of going cross-continent here, I guess. And it's yeah, very good. To, we're spanning to the whole swath of the North American continent. We've got British <laughs> Columbia, we've got Texas in the U.S., and then Virginia on the East Coast. So we're just just told him. Walter, why don't you go ahead? Yeah. All right. Uh, Dr. Gordon, how do you take your coffee? Or do you drink coffee? I take it black. You know, I used to put in all kinds of stuff, but I, my wife and I decided, you know, um, we don't need all that stuff. So, but now we, we just like black. (laughs) Very good. I I think me and Rob are the same. I, I just drink it straight black. Um, Unless, unless I'm doing like a cheap coffee that I can't stand the taste of, then I'll doctor it up with milk and sugar. But when I'm enjoying my fancy island coffee from uh, Island Roasters in Dallas, uh, I, I just drink it straight black. Cool. Yeah, we are we are both fathers of young children, so quick as quick and as much caffeine as possible. <laughs> um, so. Uh, Dr. Nichol, what's your story? Like, how did you become interested in Islamic studies and apologetics to Muslims in general? Well, it really had to do a lot with our our church who wanted to make a Christian witness to um, Muslims, especially in Pakistan and a a particular group of Muslims there. And so um, they said, you need to get to know Islam. So... They, they supported me for a year at uh, School of Oriental and African Studies in London, which is un- unbelievable, and gave me a good uh, foundation, which um, I then went on to Pakistan to teach in a seminary there in Karachi. So I taught Hebrew, <laughs> you know, Hebrew Bible, and meanwhile, got to know uh, Muslims well, lots of friends, lots of uh, family friends, and and then got a chance to do a PhD with a scholar named Andrew Rippon here in Canada. And uh, that was amazing. And so it's uh, partly uh, from Muslim friends, partly from academic study. I studied, uh, I studied Hebrew for a, uh, for a semester and formally through my church, um, one of my old church, uh, the, the, the pastor there was a Hebrew professor at Redeemer Seminary over in Dallas. Um, now, now RUS, Reformed University, something like that. Um, so anyway, so here we go. Um, Quran questions for beginners. Are we ready for this? Sure. We're going to take a quick break and have a word from a sponsor. Shenandoah Coffee Roasters has been a staple of Charlottesville since 1993. They offer over 25 varieties of specialty, boutique, and gourmet coffee using only the finest Arabia coffee from all over the world. Coffee is their passion and they painstakingly search out the best coffee available. Nothing is taken for granted as they continually strive to provide the best coffee they possibly can. They roast all their coffees to order based on the needs of their espresso bar, ensuring that only the freshest and highest quality coffee leaves their roasting house. Grab a cup at any of their three locations, Main Restaurant Preston, on the corner, or on Ivy Road, or order a bag online at shenandoahjoe.com. All right. So uh, first question is, how is the Quran organized? Yeah, good question for making a start in the Quran. It seems that the principle was organizing a group of chapters or surahs uh, 114 in number, uh, rather than organizing them thematically or chronologically, uh, those who put together this book um, organized them from longest to shortest. Now, that's not unheard of. There, there's something like this in organizing the um, prophetic books of the uh, Old, Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Right. So right. it's not un, not unknown, but 
this, uh, this became the principle. And Muslims themselves will say, this isn't chronological. Some of the first big surahs are from later in the story. And the ones right at the end are from the beginning of the story. That's how they, they see it. That's, uh, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. So uh, if we were to go to the Hebrew Bible and things not uh, necessarily be, being chronological, I know this is not an Islam question, Hebrew Bible question. What, um, which ones are not really chronological, I guess, are, uh, would, you, would did you say, or would you say it's like, I guess, in order of importance or does, does that question make sense? Yeah, it does. And it, it's a good question. So say, take the first six uh, surahs. The first one's a, a very brief prayer, a, a brief chapter uh, and reasonable as an introduction. And then you have four surahs that are long and mm -hmm. have, a lot, have a lot to do with Jews and Christians. Interesting okay. that those yeah. are up front. And that makes sense because the, you know, the Arab armies went out into um, a region that was full of, of Jews and Christians, mainly Christians. And, you know, um, they needed to talk about the things that the Christians believed and were, were um, confessing. And so those surahs are answers to Jewish and Christian belief. And those were placed right up front. That is that is very fascinating. I, I think there's probably there's a lot more history there that I would um, I would love to, and also I need to just probably read about it. Understanding that kind of um, the the I guess the the, the expansion of Islam and or uh, how all that played out. So, who wrote the Quran? Great question, and you know um, the the answer is we don't know. Very interesting to read a great scholar of Islam, Fred Donner. In a uh, in a book uh, about um, the history of early Islam, and that's exactly what he says, uh, Walter. He says, um, "How did the Quran originate? Where did it come from? And where did it first appear? How was it first written? And what kind of language was is it written?" So he's saying uh, academic scholars of Islam don't know. They're they're studying it, studying it hard but they're not coming up with answers uh, for that question. And uh, a, a book that's uh, good, we'll probably talk about this, and I, I think both of you guys know about it, is, uh, well, you can't see this, but it's Creating the Quran by Stephen Shoemaker, um, uh, an Oregon professor. And he, he deals with this question. He sort of brings this question up to date. What, what are scholars saying about it? Uh, where is it at? Uh, I recommend the book and the way, way it deals with this question of who wrote the Quran. On the other hand, I should say real quickly that on many of this, these questions that we take up, there's sort of two ways to go about it. One is the confessional, that is, what would Muslims say? Right, and right, who, yeah. And then what would academic scholars say? And just to say that academic scholars don't say differently because they want to disrespect Muslims. Uh, they're you know, hopefully approach, approaching it as questions of truth, as questions of scholarship, as questions of knowledge. And they're not out to uh, put down anyone. They're, they're uh, dealing with tough questions. And this is one of them. Yeah, it's really interesting because I remember in uh, college, we would do joint faith events with um, the Muslim Student Association. And they would always be like, we know who wrote the Quran is Muhammad. And they're like, well, who wrote Genesis? And I'm like, well, scholars kind of think Moses did, but I don't know that we really know. And they're <laughs> like, see, that's proof that your faith is, you don't even know who wrote it. But it's interesting <laughs> to be like, yeah, like, I guess there would be the confessional, like we know without a shadow of a doubt is Muhammad. But then when you get into academic, uh, the, the when you get into academics or even textual criticism, it, I get, you know, it's potentially, we don't know. We're trying to discover that. Yeah. So. Um, what literature is the Quran where, you know, um, gospel, the Gospels and Acts are usually classified as Greco-Roman bios, while Isaiah and Revelation are uh, apocalyptic prophetic books? Um, how, do, how do scholars cl classify the Quran? 
I like the way you asked that question um, and this this uh, comparison of the gospel gospel accounts and acts uh, being biography, right? Um, not not very many people know how different the gospel accounts are as literature from what's in the Quran. The Quran is not a story, though it has narratives. But it, the Quran is not a story. It's not a history. It actually doesn't tell us history. And uh, Muslims don't claim that it tells us history, actually. And so um, very different in genre, in uh, type of literature. Um, more like Isaiah in that you have units. We talk, we talk about text units in biblical studies. Um, that are often um, separate and distinct and follow one after the other and, and are not all necessarily chronological, like a book like Isaiah that you mentioned, right? Um, there's a lot of um, a, there's a lot of end time stuff in the Quran. So you mentioned apocalyptic in Revelation. There is a lot of looking at the uh, what will happen to those who are believers and those are, who are not believers. Um, in, uh, in the commentary that I wrote, the Quran of the, the Christian commentary, I, I started that in the, or in the introduction just to, uh, to help readers enjoy reading the Quran a bit more. Uh, and I highlighted, among others, uh, two kinds of literature. One is polemic and another is uh, narrative. And so narrative, I think we all understand stories about uh, figures of the past, often figures whose names we recognize from the Bible. And we'll, I think we'll talk more about that uh, in this conversation. But a polemic, some people don't like to use that word because they think it's saying something bad about the Quran. Actually, it's just a kind of literature. When, when you um, go after uh, someone else's beliefs, and and make judgments about it and say, for example, it's wrong, and you show you folks should know this instead. Uh, when you attack the foundations of another faith, that's polemic. And much of the first third, for example, of the Quran is exactly that, and it continues. It's it as I said, there were Christians and Jews in the region, and uh, the Muslim armies were meeting these folks. And there needed to be a response. And so a lot of this uh, is polemic, simply describing a kind of literature. Yeah, I have never heard of the term polemic, but that's, uh, I dig it. I remember like when I first heard the words uh, exegesis and eisegesis, I was like, oh man, so now I'm gonna put polemic in there. So what <laughs> uh, type of Arabic is the Quran written in? And how is it different from what is spoken today? Kind of like, you know, like the Hebrew Bible is written in a very old language, but uh, and is different than the Hebrew that is spoken today. At least I believe so. Yeah. Um, I truthfully don't know a lot about the Arabic of the Quran. I defer to others who, who are making this their focus. Uh, the first question, though, or one of the questions is, is it um, is it something that... Uh, people use today. And I would say that for most Muslims in the world, for most Muslims in the world, uh, everyday Muslims who who use Arabic, um, they, they, they have trouble understanding the Arabic of the Quran. So you've got a gap of, of 1400 years, right? Uh, so it's not readily readable by uh, Arabic speakers today. Um, but uh, I defer to some other scholars on the question of the Arabic of the Quran. Um, Rob and I know a fellow on Twitter named Marayan Hanputa, and he's really good on this. I, I read his book, Quranic Arabic, last year and, and uh, reviewed it for a, for a conference in Germany of the in Inara organization. And uh, I don't go along with everything he says there, but he certainly um, knows a lot about the topic and it's worth, worth uh, reading what he's written. I, I will interject and I'll put this in the show notes. Um, that book's actually free. It is um, from a highly 
respected academic publisher and you can download it for for free on pdf that's how i read it in piecemeal because i also probably know even less arabic than dr nickel i for sure do uh but uh dr van putin's uh analysis was was quite interesting We're, uh, so we're going to move on to a little bit more in-depth uh, conversation on uh, just questions on Dr. Nichols' uh, Christian commentary to the Quran. Uh, to start off with, what what prompted you to take on such such a project? This seems a pretty wide and in-depth um, subject, and and one that seems wholly unique. I've never, I haven't seen a kind of like. Um, the Vedas with Christian commentary, uh, right? Yeah. So, a, a, another, another um, holy book with a trying to help Christians walk through it. Um, so yeah, just how what was the genesis of this this project for you? Yeah, um, a publisher that known as Zondervan or Harper Harper Christian, I think it's also called, uh, approached me about it. And uh, you can imagine what a great opportunity, right? I mean, most of us were knocking on the doors of publishers. Will you please, you know, publish my stuff? And uh, here a publisher comes and says, would you do it? And so I wrote back and said, you know, I'm going to do it in a certain way. Are you guys, up, you know, okay with that? Are you going to get in trouble? Um, and they said, yeah, do it the way you want. And so you can can just see what a what a gift that was. Uh, I'd been teaching courses on the contents of the Quran for 20, 30 years prior uh, in Asia, in the United States, in Canada. So I had all the <laughs> I had tons of notes and had had a concept of of what the whole book is like, and uh, perhaps had the the confidence to to express my opinions on it. So I, I thought uh, it fit in with what I was doing at the time. I was teaching and writing, so I thought, go for it. Excellent, thank you. Uh, I noticed while, when I was reading through it, when I got it probably about a year ago, um, it was, there are a number of essays in it that aren't, you write some of them, but how did you recruit these essayists? Did, did they pick their own topics? Did you assign them? How did you work through that? that um, how did you work through that? Some of these were friends that I knew were working on various topics. Some I, I knew of them, so contacted them and, and said, would you write? Uh, you see, we, we were looking for people who know the Quran well, or some aspect of the Quran well, from an academic point of view, but also people who are willing to present a Christian perspective, right? So you can see an intersection of, of those is also quite rare. Good scholars who are, um, are willing to be honest about what they're thinking. And so you'll find in some of the essays, uh, they do this. Uh, others perhaps just stick with the academics. Uh, but some some will actually enter into the uh, controversial questions, and this is helpful. There's many there's many Christians who would like to know more about the Quran, um, and to have to have a, a scholar uh, give the academic goods, as well as comment on the truth of the text, is I think very helpful for the church. Yeah, I 100% agree. Uh, I actually asked our librarian at, at the church I attend if, if it could be put on a um, book list to get, and they actually got it within within a week. So, yeah, right on. Uh, what are some common Christian misconceptions about the Quran? Like, what are Christian, what aspects of the Quran or even Islam do you think that Christians often get wrong that you felt the need to focus on either here in these essays that were written or, or general commentary? and, and in the Quran with Christian commentary, or in general, I know you've written a, a lot of academic papers. What are some of the kind of like best of um, misconceptions about Islam that you normally 
see Christians um, um, talking about or, or, or asserting as fact. Not sure how you, you fellows find it in your uh, lives and experience of Christians, but Christians generally tend to be more generous toward the Quran than is really warranted. That is, they, they want to be able to say good things, uh, not negative things. And so if they don't know much, they'll say the, the good things. For example, that you know, the Quran contains the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. I've heard that from many. I don't know where oh, they I got to. Yeah. Oh, I was always told that. Oh, yeah, it has the Old Testament in there. <laughs> right. I mean, that is so that is so wrong. So where did that even start? I mean, read it, read the Quran, read 100 pages of the Quran. And the, the Quran is um, interacting with some of the ideas of Judaism and Christianity. But it's, you know, it's certainly not giving the spotlight, giving, you know, giving a, a platform for the Bible. Not, not at all. Uh, but subjects uh, that I thought were important um, since 9-11, since for sure, but uh, going back to the first Gulf War uh, and the Irani revolution of uh, 1979, a lot of people have been talking about um, whether there's violence in the Quran, right? Um, is there really stuff there about fighting, killing? Uh, what's jihad all about? What's, you know, what does the word mean? There's been a tremendous spin on that, some of this stuff, since, especially since 9-11. Uh, I won't uh, say too much about that. But when I wrote the commentary, I thought, hey, whenever the vocabulary of jihad comes up, I'm just going to explain it. I'm going to just take, take the time to explain it, what's going on, what it means, what's the context. Uh, that was one of those things that there's been a tremendous amount of confusion and actually a lot of... Uh, wrong understandings. Um, so Christians have been generous with that. And I don't think it's warranted. Uh, but also things like the love of God. So for Christians, uh, love, the love of God is, is a, big, a big deal. Um, how does that play out in the Quran? So again, when I came to statements where it says, Allah loves and then object, I, I noted that, and I, I wrote quite a bit about that. So that, that, too, is an area where people are likely to say, well, isn't love in all the religions? I mean, aren't they all about love? Well, are they? I mean, it's <laughs> what kind of a, like, when you ask that question, what, what do you have in mind? Are you trying to, produce, to prove a prejudice, or do you really want to know? If you want to know, then you have to search it out. And as it turns out, uh, the love of God in Jesus Christ, the love of God sending Jesus to die for our sins is, is categorically different from anything in the Quran. The idea of a conditional, uh, un unconditional love, that God loves us, you know, as sinners, right? That he showed his love for us when we are rebelling, you know, I mean, there's just nothing at all like that in the Quran. So those kinds of areas, I thought, well, we have something to say there. Let's, let's try to say it as well as we can. The, the whole theological question, who is Allah in the Quran, has been not well treated, and often is treated political. So wherever you come down on that, you're a good guy or a bad guy. Well, that's not how to talk about theology. You have to then read what the Quran says about Allah. What does he do? What's he like? Is that the same God revealed in Jesus Christ? This is the question. And so these kinds of questions should are not political questions. I don't know, guys, what do you find? Everything becomes political nowadays. Which side are you on? The right side or the wrong side? No. If we're talking about questions of truth, let's put that aside and, and study. And uh, it's, it's a matter of truth and integrity. How can, how can you, uh, how can I 
uh, agree to something and speak as if we agree if we actually don't? Is there an integrity that we stick with our, our beliefs, we stick with our commitments, uh, we, we, we stay in Christ, we, we, we stand firm, or do we sort of sniff the wind? Okay, well, how should I answer this according to politics? Uh, no, let's, <laughs> let's be people of truth, people of integrity. If we're proven wrong about something, let's admit it and shift. Let's, let's adjust. But uh, you know what I mean? Unfortunately, yes, it's much easier to make a decision when a decision's already been made for you based off your political or ideological team, right? It's like, oh, well, I'm going to hate the other or love the other because I'm either a Republican or a Democrat or I'm Muslim or, or Christian when truth is above that type of partisanship and that type of easy answer. So, yeah. yeah I feel you there, Dr. Nichol. How are um, how are chronic studies and biblical studies similar, and how are they different? And kind of asked another way, um, when looking at uh, how the Quran relates stories and how the Bible relates stories, how are those similar and how are those different? We we know there's there's the there's in a broad overview, there are stories often retold in, in the Quran of, of Bible stories like of Jonah or of Eden, um, even of the the virgin birth of Christ. Uh, there's there's a whole there, there's a whole lot of interwoven Old Testament, specifically mostly stories uh, Moses and Pharaoh. How are those different? How are those similar? And how do scholars tend to pair those out when when looking at them? That's a great discussion, and if I if I miss something, please uh, please prompt me, or remind me, or or uh, give your own insights. Um, in many ways, the stories uh, are told in a similar way. So we love the biblical stories. Think of uh, the story of Joseph and how many of us learned that at as as children, and we thought, what a great. I mean, we were captivated, right? And the Quran has a whole chapter, the 12th surah, on Joseph and tells the story. Um, and the, the Quran really appreciates those narratives. It, they make up a big part of the Quran. They're, they're one of the best parts of the Quran, actually. Uh, a couple of differences, though. The Quranic stories leave out a lot of details that would be considered necessary for a full comprehension of the story, right? And that's really uh, intrigued a lot of scholars. What's up? Why would you tell a story and leave out essential details? Who's the audience? Okay, so some say, if you tell a story and you leave out details, is that because you assume that the listener knows them already? Well, if the listener knows them already, then these aren't uh, Arab pagans in the desert. Then the audience is somebody else, right? So uh, that's one of the aspects. The other thing is, uh, even with the story of Joseph, uh, it will add details that are not in the Bible, but may come up in Jewish or Christian literature um, uh, after the, the Bible was closed. And so in the story of Joseph, very briefly, you have a scene of uh, uh, Potiphar's wife wanting to show off Joseph, what a hot guy he is, and uh, having her neighbor women over gives them, each of them, a knife to cut their fruit. They've all got them in their hands. And then she says, Joseph, come in. And they're also like, they're also surprised by his handsomeness that they all cut their palms with their knives. Well, 
don't recognize that one from <laughs> Genesis. So you have those kinds of details and people have been fascinated by them, try to track them down in rabbinic literature or in apocryphal Christian literature. And they've, they've been able to actually track down a lot of those extra details. Now, um, moving on to how, how they're portrayed. Um, there, is, there seems to be a pattern in how um, figures from the past are portrayed. It's almost like a template. You just plug in a name and it, the story is roughly the same. And the story is God sends a messenger. The messenger comes to the people. The messenger preaches. The people reject. The messenger warns. The people aren't buying. God destroys the people and saves the messenger. That's, that's the template that many stories follow. And of course, uh, that's not the, <laughs> the, the, Prophetic figures in the in the Bible are all unique. They have their own story. They don't follow a template. Uh, it's they're they're all different, and so there you find you can you can imagine what a rich area this would be for scholarship and for for thinking about the portrayal of um, of of the prophets there. Um, yeah, enough. To, Maybe perhaps you have some comments on that or further questions. Yeah, so, so, so they, okay. Um, back in college again, a guy came and talked about, and he said how the Bible led me to Islam and he shared his story. And his thing was he read the Bible and saw these heroes of faith, but how corrupt and wrong they were. And then he read the Quran and it put them in more of a positive light. At least this is what he said. I've never read the Quran, so I have no idea. But I'm like, oh, I was like, wait, that's the whole point. The whole point is these guys are terrible. They're, they're, they screw up, but God still uses them and God still calls them and God still loves them. And like it, it, we can all identify with that now, but if everyone's like perfect. And uh, so again, I don't know if that's how the Quran actually just portrays the heroes of the faith, like Joseph or David, like, uh, oh Lord, I can't think of anyone else right now, but you know, uh, so is yeah. there... Is there any truth to that or is that that's an important that's, that's an important dimension there and you're right we appreciate that the prophetic the prophets of the bible uh, were not perfect and that god used them nevertheless i mean this is this is our concept of grace i mean we know our own sinfulness uh, we want we ourselves wonder how god can use someone like me i mean there's just so much cred there. Um, and so the, for prophetic figures, for, for a narrative of uh, a sin of a prophet and hopefully um, being delivered from that or, or um, you know, think of David in our, you mentioned David and, uh, and Bathsheba. Actually, the, the Quran itself does not present the prophetic figures as perfect. This is actually a, a theory that started up, um, some say in the third century of Islam, you know, that's quite a distance, uh, a, a concept of the sinlessness of prophets. Prophets don't sin. And then there is a critique of the Bible. Okay, you've got stories here. Uh, prophet sinning that proves their corruption that sort of uh, you know logical process right and so um so yeah this this is a big area of it and um this really isn't there in the quran itself uh, but uh we appreciate uh you know the way that god works with people and also that god trusts uh, people who are less than perfect Thank you. Yeah, I um, yeah, a, a, a kind of big example I always point to is I forget in which surah, but in in the story of Moses, um, one of the advisors to Pharaoh is um, is Haman, the uh, the the kind of evil uh, antagonist in the story of Esther, and so um, 
there's that. There's also a few other, can't uh, make it off the top of my head, but there's a few other kind of mixing of elements where a, a Christian with even a, you know, who's read the Bible at least once or twice or, or heard, you know, the solid amount of Sunday school stories um, would be like, wait, why is Haman in Pharaoh's court? He's a Babylonian official. And I yeah. sometimes try to be like, yeah, that's an inconsistency between the long chronic stories. Yeah, well, you know, some sometimes the differences between the Bible story and the Quran story can be uh, pretty crucial. Maybe not exactly the Quran st story, but Islam story. So you fellas know in the story of uh, Abraham, how um, Genesis is, is very clear that the son of sacrifice was Isaac. And you may have heard from Muslim friends that no, it was Ishmael, actually. You see how politics would be involved here. Uh, did God, you know, did God's blessing flow through Isaac to the Jews or through Ishmael to the Arabs, right? It becomes quite, quite political. But, you know, when you look at the manuscripts, if you care to search these things out, um, then you find, you know, there were <laughs> the, the, uh, Hebrew Bible was complete before the start of Islam in the in seventh century. And you can go back to the Dead Sea Scrolls, a, a, a huge gap of say 800 years and find that the, you know, the, the manuscripts of the Torah, the manuscripts of Genesis, are, there's no doubt, there's no, there's no manuscripts there that would make, uh, mention Ishmael. But these things become uh, sources of arguments for us and, and, and also accusations of corruption of the Bible. And, and um, I actually spent a lot of time on that question because it was a big one when I was in Pakistan and in India and wrote a, a book called The Gentle Answer. I actually dealt with this question of the sinlessness of prophets and, and pointed out how the Quran's prophets, the Quran's figures, actually ask forgiveness of God. Now, you don't ask forgiveness unless there's a need for it, unless there's sin there. So they themselves, in asking forgiveness, show uh, that this, this concept of prophetic sinlessness um, is, is really not on. It's, it's a false idea. Just one other comment uh, pushing this. It, it reflects on the messenger of Islam, that is, if the messenger of Islam is not perfect, is not sinless, then why should you trust the, what Muslims understand to be God's revelation through him? So the, the idea was that the, the conduit, the, the pipe, the um, however you think of you know, revelation uh, needs to be pure, needs to be perfect, needs to be sinless. And so if you start re raising questions about the conduct of the messenger, what happens then to the credibility of the Quran that it would come from Allah? So you see that you see how, uh, and I believe there's an overlap so that the, the concept of prophetic sinlessness comes at a time when Muslims wanted to insist that their messenger like all other prophets, is sinless. What do you guys think? I'll I'll let, I'll let Walter speak first, just because I want to hear the uh, I want to hear the the outsider's perspective. No, it makes sense to me. Like, right? Like, if you're, it, it's the whole thing. Like, me and my wife have discussed. You know, uh, like you know, when God's like destroy this whole people, <laughs> like you know. Like, why did they kill everybody? God told us to do it. <laughs> if you think about the, the the politics of it or whatever, or even just the, um, you know, I'm not saying God didn't tell the Jews to, you know, destroy all the Canaanites and whatnot. But um, yeah, if you're trying to prove that you're one up, it's like, well, my messenger's sinless. What about yours? Uh, your prophets, you saying that your prophets have sinned, that, you know, again, that just can't be right. That, that's how we know it's wrong. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it makes sense, but 
I guess the hard part for me, I, and hopefully it's not going too far off the rail, is if I'm a believer and somebody's coming saying, well, no, we're actually right because Muhammad was sinless and all of our prophets were sinless. But I'm like, yeah, but no, but Jesus is resurrected. Like what, why would I, why would I convert or why would I, uh, and I don't know what, ha- you know, I don't, I don't know the history there, but it's just, it's just interesting to be like, yeah, you could, we could argue all you want to, but my savior is resurrected. So there's nothing. That's well, we'll, we'll actually get to that in, a, in two questions, but we, um, we, Dr. Nichol, you kind of already answered some of this in the last question, but I'll, I'll ask it just in case you want to, you want to um, add anything on like how, how are biblical prophets portrayed in the Quran, like Abraham and Moses, are they basically the same? Do they diverge wildly? Um, if if the latter, if they if they do diverge wildly, can this just be chalked up to either biblical co- corruption or even Arabic cultural context? Like, what's what's the explanation if there is um, division, or in this, especially deep division in these stories and in and characterization of these prophets that are overlapped in in the two religions? Um, how what's the explanation for that? Yeah. Well, uh, on on this biblical corruption, of course, uh, biblical corruption is an accusation, right? You can't really hang a, anything on it. It's it's not a fact or something that's anything like proven. It's 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 an accusation that people make, and you know, people who are committed to Christ and uh, and read the Bible, I believe it is God's word and it's true. So, um, but to go back, so you have lots of stories about Moses and Abraham that that you uh, mentioned. Moses especially, Moses especially, there was something about the figure of Moses that that really intrigued the writers of the Quran and became a bit of a, uh, a model for how Islam's messenger then was portrayed. So, Moses was the big guy, more so than Jesus or anyone else, Moses, because Moses combined, uh, you know, the sort of spiritual aspect of prophecy with, uh, with a warrior, like uh, he led armies, right? And so um, he was, he, he's big. Interesting, though, uh, studying the, the stories about Moses in the Quran, and many, many of which um, are similar to the biblical details. Um, have some apocryphal rabbinic material thrown in for sure. Uh, but with Moses, there's multiple versions. This is an interesting area of, uh, of study. I wish that more were doing it. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm supervising a PhD student in India to explore this. You know, uh, our Muslim friends come to us and they say, hey, you guys, you've got four gospel accounts and they don't all agree so your your scripture is uh corrupt and you don't really know anything about jesus at all you ever heard of that it happens all oh, the time oh yes all the time well that that that, that is not only a, a pretty common muslim um complaint on on biblical corruption but i mean it's also found pretty regularly in in critical scholarship uh, uh, critique of the Bible, but also just a- new atheist polemics who are like, oh, look, there are these two differences, therefore contradiction, therefore the Gospels don't know anything about the historical Jesus. Right. But if as a Muslim you you want to make that kind of uh, accusation and polemic is really what it is, uh, are you willing to uh, look at your own scripture and you find uh, 10, 13 versions of the Moses story, and they're all different. And they have uh, many uh, big differences in details. For example, who, who, uh, you know, who encouraged the people to make the golden calf there? Was it Aaron or was it some guy named the Samadhi? Like, what's that about? Completely different and a huge difference, right? So you have incidental differences. You have some huge differences. In one of the court scenes, some guy runs into the court and sticks up for Moses. 
Like, what's that about? These are all um, Quranic stories. All I'm saying is, if you as a Muslim are, are, are saying that the gospel is wrong and corrupt because of differences in four accounts, four witnesses, right? One gospel with four accounts, four forms, the church fathers said. If you, if you want to say because there's differences between accounts, they cancel out, then what do you do with the stories in the Quran that are multiple, that are all different, that have wildly different details in some of the tellings? Are you ready to say because of difference, this is not the word of God? This cancels the whole book out? So uh, this is about prophet stories, right? Uh, what, uh, you know, where's your integrity in your attack of the scripture that we hold dear and consider the word of God? Where's, you know, are you, do you know what you're doing? Are you, are you being, are you being sneaky about this? Knowing the differences in your own stories you're willing to say this to us? You, you know where I'm going with this? Can, can we have a decent conversation about this without you saying things which you would never apply to your own scripture? Right. It, it's saying, hey, don't, don't. I mean, it's right. It's like, don't look at the speck in my eye and there's a log in your eye or vice versa. It's just the idea of saying, Hey, if you're going to apply that same criticism, then to us, you also have to apply it to what you're reading. And that's what I can appreciate about um, at least how I've been taught with Christianity or, and with the Bible is there's certain things that we just don't know. And I'm okay with that. There might be some things in there that's like, well, how do these two, how are these two interacting? And if we don't know, like I don't have to know 100%. As I just always go back to, I don't always know how how or why God's doing something the way he's doing it. Sometimes it makes sense. Sometimes it doesn't. But I will still be, I, I will not just be, uh, I'll at least think it through and be like, okay, well, what do I actually believe about this? And not just be like, oh, whatever. It's what it says. So it must be true. And so I think, I think there's a, there's a, a need to say, hey, whatever I'm going to apply to something else. Yeah. Can I do it to my own? Uh, and basically, and, I don't know if, if honoring is the right word, but basically saying, hey, look, I'm not going to I'm not going to come at you like that. So don't come at me. like that." You know, uh, let's yeah. let's be balanced in how yeah. we. Yeah, I, I appreciate how you put that. Kind of kind of capping on this and Dr. Nicola, I know you wanted to talk um, a lot about this, uh, spe specifically about prophets or in, in Christianity, the uh, our Lord and Savior, what is the difference between the biblical Jesus and uh, the what's been termed the Quranic Isa, the um, the Arabic name for Jesus in the Quran? What are the main differences? What are some similarities? How do those shape um, the understanding of, of Jesus specifically in Islam, but also how that is uh, quite the divide in, in these two religions? That's the central question, really. And I'm glad you've included that. You know, the gospel presents Jesus as, as the Savior, as the Messiah, as the Lord, as the one who, who can tell humanity what's the right way to behave. Um, it confesses him as Son of God, confesses his deity. Um, these are all things that, that are important. If you're, if you're going for the consistency of the four gospel accounts and you're saying, okay, there's differences there, are people willing to say, listen, there's four, there's four witnesses here that Jesus died, that he died on the cross. Now, it, it's largely the, the letters of the New Testament that developed the meaning of the death of Jesus. 
but our folks, uh, if they say, okay, you've got differences in the four accounts, therefore they cancel. Are you willing to say they all agree on this without a doubt? And are you willing to take that to the bank, so to speak? Can you, can you accept where they all converge? In the case of Islam, uh, or the Quran, sorry, uh, you really have very little about Jesus. When it comes down to it, it's very little. There aren't uh, something like 90 verses, most of them about the, the birth of Jesus in language quite similar to Luke chapter one, though not, uh, not willing to say, this is the son of the most high, right? Um, but the feeling of most scholars, and of course, most all, I would say, almost 100% of Muslims is that Jesus didn't die. Therefore, that whole good news of God's salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus is lost. There, there's, a, there's a concept of, a, uh, you know, of Jesus being taken up, but no, nothing about his death or resurrection, right? So that's huge for Christian faith and, and huge for what the New Testament says about him. And when you start to think about what's missing, um, you, you have these stories in the gospel accounts of, about Jesus interacting with people of all kinds, sometimes healing them, sometimes just talking with them. That gentle Jesus, that gentleness of Jesus, the authority, his love, his compassion, right? It really didn't even, there's not a word about that in the Quran. It just didn't make it through. I, I don't know why. It's, it's, it's terrific. It's wonderful. And so there's a lot, there's a whole bunch of things that didn't make it into the Quran. The, um, the, G, the Isa of the Quran, of course, you guys know too, the name Isa doesn't quite make sense in, in Hebrew. In, in Hebrew has uh, three root letters. For, uh, so you have Yehoshua, meaning um, Yahweh saves. That's, that's the name of Jesus. It's meaningful. Uh, remember in uh, Matthew chapter one, for he shall save his people from their sins, therefore his, his name. But the, the three letters that make up Isa in Arabic uh, are a kind of a flip of the three Hebrew letters. Instead of uh, Yeshua, you have the, the, uh, the um, ayin is in the, in the front. Yehoshua is in the back, actually. Isa uh, is in the front. And so it's sort of a sign. So you have a name that, that's flipped. And it, Jesus just doesn't come through. There's no savior there. And of course, his deity is, is emphatically denied. One of the things that most Muslims pick up from the Quran and, and will tell us too, right? We like Jesus, right? We respect him. We even love him. But, but, there's always a but. But what? He's not the son of God. Yep. <laughs> The gospel accounts are clear. There's no doubt in the New Testament, in the gospel accounts, that he's the son of God. There's no doubt there. It's not, it's not, it's not a, a matter of uh, question or doubt for us. Mark 1-1 Mark one, one states it yeah. very clearly. Yeah. But somehow that, that has been a, a real point of contention, right? And I remember once years ago when we were in Germany, and I happened to uh, give a copy of Mark to a Palestinian friend. It was in the lunchroom of, of the school where we were studying, actually learning German. <laughs> and he sees that first verse and he just takes that copy of Mark and just tears it, tears it up, throws it on the floor and walks out. So like, what's that about? You know, why, why that, that kind of reaction, right? Um, so there's something about the deity of Jesus that's central in all this, a confession of his deity. Because see, if Jesus is God and Jesus is Lord, 
then no prophetic figure of any kind, whether a true prophet or one who claims a prophet, is even close. And this is a, a basic uh, fact of the gospel and Islam. Our confession about Jesus is rejected there and denied. And the Quran seems to be the, the start of that. Great answer. Thank you. Uh, since you're, since you um, included or, or picked um, A.J. Droge's translation for your chronic commentary, uh, what made you pick this over Oxford's, which is done by uh, Abdel Halim, or the, the Clear Quran by Mustafa Kadabib, um, or even the Study Quran by Saeed, Saeed Nasser? Uh, is, there, is there a reason you picked Druge's or did you, uh, is there any specific reason to pick Druge's or is there just, um, just off the cuff kind of liked it the best? Yeah, when we, when we were setting this book up, I mean, as you said earlier, it's very unusual for Christians to publish the full text of the Quran in order to comment on it. And I, I think this is something great that Zondervan did. Uh, you know, it's not trying to say something against Islam without you know, with the without the evidence there. On each page, it's got what, what the Quran actually says. And then the comments are referring to that. It's not, there's nothing mysterious about it. There's nothing hidden about it. It's just right there. The text is there. Now, at the time we were thinking of which text to use, there, there are a number of uh, versions that are just free. So that's always attractive to a publisher, <laughs> having, using a free translation of the Quran. There's lots of them. And I went through all of the main ones and just thought, okay, can we find one that that's that's really true to the Arabic? So I, I do read the, the Arabic text and I was looking for a text that that portrays it accurately. And uh, Droges had come up at the time, uh, let's say mid, uh, let's say seven years ago or so. And uh, just re really seemed good to us. I mean, Zonoran had to pay for it. So they they uh, they they wanted a good translation. I, I considered a good translation. Um, just to mention uh, Abdul Halim, which is a big seller. I I actually have used that um, in classes, including in, in Columbia, South Carolina, there at, uh, at Columbia International University. And some of the sharper students started to complain that he uh, the the translation puts Muhammad in brackets in, in many places where it's just a singular vocative you or talking about you. Well, we don't know that. We don't know it's Muhammad. We really don't. The name Muhammad comes up four times in the Quran, uh, always in the third person, never in the vocative. Um, and so what, what kind of translation is that? So you've got it uh, in brackets. And we started to find cases where the brackets were forgotten and there was stuff in there that wasn't in the Arabic text. And we thought, oh boy, I better not, not use that one again. A big seller. And the thing is too, uh, many translations are already interpretations, right? So they're, they're interpretations of the text according to Muslim dogma. They're not, they're not an ac accurate um, uh, rendition of the, of the Arabic text. They, <laughs> it's, it's not right. We, we you know, and think of that in, a, in a, well, we do have New Testament translations where <laughs> there's a lot of stuff in there. But, you know, if you're going to read the Bible, you want a rendition in English that, that sticks with the Hebrew or uh, Aramaic or, or Greek and gives it to you straight. And we are looking for something like that so that readers could reflect on the text as it is as closely as, closely as possible and not already with embedded interpretation according to Islamic dogma. I think Walter's got, got our ending question for you, Dr. Nickel. And, uh... That he might have to roll. 
You are muted, Walter. I can speak. Uh, where do you see Christians and Muslims in the West bridging divides? Kind of like uh, what issues do you think uh, Christians and Muslims can tackle together or work together on or work, uh, yeah, work together on? Well, some things have been coming up here. I don't know if in the States, but certainly in Canada, where in, in our public schools, um, teachers have decided to, to push gender ideology and, uh, and sexual orientation. Now, Muslims and Christians have feelings about this and a lot of the same feelings. And unfortunately in Canada, uh, you know, the, the sort of progressive uh, gatekeepers, the, the sort of woke uh, government that uh, Justin Trudeau has, has brought into the country, um, it's been become very difficult for Orthodox Christians to get a hearing of any kind. They, it's almost like we've needed to just put up with it because they will not listen to us. They don't care. They really don't care uh, of our uh, social, uh, social uh, feelings, our morality. And uh, so Muslims have been raising all kinds of uh, protests recently in Canada. And that's got the, that's got the attention of the government because they want those votes. You know, they've been counting on those votes. Well, I won't go on about this. All I'm saying is that there, there are areas of morality that we share and we should be working together. Um, sometimes when we talk about what we have in common, uh, people try to find the theological things in common. And here, I, I don't think we've, uh, I don't think we would be very successful. Uh, Orthodox Christians and Orthodox Muslims um, believe different things. They really do. Uh, the good thing is we both believe in truth. So we can have a kind of do uh, dialogue where truth is important. We don't just say whatever. We don't just say, well, your truth, my truth. No, we say there's one truth. And that's exactly what I heard when I was at the village level in India, speaking in Urdu with a local Arabic teacher. That's exactly what he said. There's one truth here. It's yours or it's ours. Let's go. That's refreshing. That's refreshing. That is right on. And we share it. We share it. Um, and it's important. And we, and you'd find many Muslims would, would respect a Christian taking that kind of stand, even if the Muslim totally disagreed with what the, Muslim, what the Christian was saying. There's a respect for integrity. There's respect for sticking with the truth. There's respect for giving your best arguments for the truth. I found that in many places. And they say, come on, let's have tea together. And I, I don't agree with anything you said just now, but I really like you. You know, you, you, know, you take a stand for the truth. And that's, isn't that something great? We, can work to, we should work together on freedom of conscience. We should work on freedom of religion. We should be talking about, you know, the freedom for a Muslim to accept Christ and follow him. The freedom for a Christian. We already have this. No one's objecting to Christians following Islam. You gave an example earlier. No one no one's has a problem with that. We need to, though, have, have an even playing field here. We need to have uh, freedom to go in any direction. If there's a bridge, it's mutual respect and peaceable relationships, friendliness in the midst of difference. It's not to say, hey guys, we all have the same God, therefore we're friends. No, the theological question needs to be dealt with uh, in its own right. It's a big question. It doesn't help to to uh, trivialize that question by politics. No, in my opinion, there's a big theological question as to who Allah is in the Quran and who God is revealed in Jesus. 
and that doesn't make me a hater of anyone. Um, that's that's my integrity, that's my commitment, and uh, so yeah, we don't need to agree about God in order to be friends. We can be good friends. We can live together. Amen. We can cooperate on many things. Yep. And uh, that's that's how I approach it. Nice. What an excellent way, an excellent answer to end the podcast. Uh, Dr. Nichol, thank you so much. Uh, if you're looking to yeah, thank you. Know, know more about Dr. Nichol, please see the show notes below. I'll, I'll link your, your Twitter and your academia page and your Substack and, and your Amazon page. Um, and anything else, if you have any other questions, feel free to uh, reach out to us or our email is below and uh, maybe even shoot Dr. Nichol a DM on Twitter. And he, is, uh, he responds quite, quite kindly. Um, Dr. <laughs> Nichol, thank you for coming on Church Coffee. You're very welcome. And so, so good to meet you guys and uh, God, God's best to you in your work uh, and in your walk with Christ. And uh, yeah, keep in touch. All right. Thank you. Our album art was done by my wife, and our theme music was composed by TJ Stokes.